You are listening to a random attempt at comedy on WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. I'm your host, Random Allen, the man who shows that you can have a whole show based around name puns. Just kidding, we talk about movies and classic rock too. Now kick back, relax, and enjoy the next hour. This week on the show, we are joined by our special guest, musician and my good friend, Steve Lloyd. This hour, we're talking about the Beatles, Stanley Kubrick films, and how Steve got started making music. The views and opinions expressed on a random attempt at comedy are our own and do not reflect the views and opinions of WWSU 106.9 FM or Wright State University. What song are we going to be listening to before we cut to our first break? Not Guilty by the Beatles. Awesome. Not Guilty Getting in your way while you're trying to steal the day. Not guilty. And I'm not before the rest. I'm not trying to steal your best. I'm not trying to be smart. I only want what I can get. Really sorry for your aging head, but like you heard me said, not guilty. No use handing me a writ while I'm trying to do my bit. I don't expect to take your heart, I only want what I can get. I'm really sorry that you're underfed, but like you heard me said, not guilty.
Hello and welcome to Random Tempted Comedy, the only show on live radio hosted by a guy named Random. Today we are joined by my friend Steve Lloyd. How does it feel to be on a radio, man? I'm telling you what, man, it's a first. I've uh, th- This happened very unexpectedly and I'm just grateful for the opportunity, so thank you. That's really cool, man. Why did you pick that particular Beatles song? Well, you know, growing up, like, I listened to a lot of their, you know, mainstream albums like Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road, but delved deeper into, like, the unreleased stuff that they came out with. It's one of those ones, like, you rediscover. We talked about George Harrison earlier and, like, you know, how he was just always in John and Paul's shadow, it seemed like. Then he started to make it his own. That were unreleased. That one just, it's just really unique to me. And uh, it's been in my head, like, the last day and a half, so. It really speaks to you. It really does. The thing about George Harrison is he was really an undiscovered talent. I mean, when your competition are literally two of the best songwriters and singers in the world, it's hard to try to outshine them. But at the same time, during some of his songs, like Something, for example, he really did. And one of the like Paul McCartney's biggest regrets that he said like recently is that he didn't give George more time to shine earlier on during like the, the early periods of the Beatles. Right. And like, you know, you notice that especially if you watch the Let It Be like the studio sessions and all when they were at each other's throats quite a bit. You know, George was trying to show him uh, the song off of uh, Let It Be called I Me Mine. Yeah. And John pretty much just, you know, totally brushed it off. He's like, run along, son. We're a rock man. We're not doing that song. And then it wound up on the album anyway. But at least Paul came around a bit and like owned up for it because they really put him in a corner a lot, you know. They really did. Like, as for example, like one of his best ones, like my While My Guitar Gently Weeps, he, they kind of just brushed him off as soon as he like gave them the song, which, as we know, is one of the best songs ever. And he oh, had yeah. to bring in Eric Clapton, who was one of his best friends, and also he shared a wife with him. They always made that joke yeah. to like record on. And like John and Paul are just like, "Wow, Eric Clapton's here? Okay, we'll start to take this more seriously. <laughs> yeah, he was brought in to kind of like smooth tensions, you know, and they were on their best behavior when Eric showed up. So that's true. a good session. To their credit, like, even they, like, back then, like, when something, like, when he brought in something, they're just like, wow, this is amazing, man. This is great. I think, um, who was it who, um, calls something, like, the best love song ever written? Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, yeah, you're right. Actually, he attributed it to, um, John and Paul at first, like, Lennon McCartney. Right, yeah. But then he's just like, oh, yeah, it's George Harrison. I feel bad about that, but (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But, like, to hear that kind of compliment from someone who was widely revered as one of the best artists of their time, that's a huge compliment. Yeah, it is. So what are some of your favorite Beatles songs? Like, what would be in your top ten? The White Album is my all-time favorite record. Um, Abbey Road is next. But if I had to pick a top, it would probably be the side two of Abbey Road. Side two of Abbey Road? Yeah, like uh, Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight, Me, Me Mr. Mustard, you know, Paul Theme Pam, Carry That Weight, you know. And uh, the end and all that. like Yeah, the end. It, it was just a heck of a way to end a record. Strawberry Fields Forever, Off Magical Mystery Tour, Blue Jay Way, Old Brown Shoe by George. That was for the White Album Sessions and never made it. Yeah. Not Guilty would be one of them, obviously. Um, the Night Before, Off of Help, You Got to Hide Your Love Away. I don't know. but <laughs> you're, you're almost 10, man. I kind of put you on the spot there. Okay, well, that's fine. It, it's hard to pick because yeah. they're all really good. You have a unique song selection as far as the Beatles goes for your like your favorite, which I find very interesting. Yeah, like and a lot of the songs that really weren't exactly hits or weren't singles, like I always found them to be more interesting. And then uh, a lot of them were like underrated classics. Yeah, really, like songs that should have got more airplay but didn't. Yeah, some of their most famous works, like Twist and Shout, are like covers, and a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, and John was battling the flu when he did that one. Yeah, I remember what Twist and Shout, they, it was towards the end of their recording session for yeah. Please Please Me. Yeah. And then he's just like, um, okay, 
I think it was Brian Epstein. He's like, we can only get like one take or like two takes out of John because George his voice Martin, is about I, to. I, I, George Martin, I think, probably did that. Yeah, probably but, George Martin. But Brian Epstein was probably present as well. And then, yep. but he only, had, like you said, he only had one shot. And if he didn't make and it, he that did was it for the day. Yeah, I know because his voice was done. Oh yeah, it was fried. I can't imagine the kind of things that, like, especially like musicians who are constantly touring and constantly recording, have to like go through with their voice. Like, they're probably completely drained by the end of the day. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a lot of energy to put into it, a lot of passion. It's it's something that just go full head on because yeah. there's no backing off. There's no um, <clears throat> there's no doing any of that. You got to give it all you got. Especially if you're talking about a song like Twist and Shout. Absolutely. That's that, one of that those ones where you have song. to see. Yeah, you have to right. like scream it almost. Right, from the very bottom, you know, and like uh, he was just there with his shirt off, I guess, just chugging milk, trying to keep his vocals like, you know. Yeah, just like intact enough to finish the like the end of the song. Right, and at the very end of it, you can hear Paul in the background go, yay, because they made it. You know? Yeah, they finally <laughs> did it. Yeah. So before we start our first segment, I'm, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the tragic passing of Eddie Van Halen two days ago. Yeah. It certainly did. is a loss to music, and it's another one of like these famous musicians, famous actors that we have lost during this year. Exactly. Like, it was, uh, I just remember seeing it, and that just, it's one of those deaths of, well, it's like Neil Peart at the beginning of the year. Yeah. That threw me for a loop. And apparently EVH, you know, he died of, like, throat cancer. And I was just like, I had no idea he was battling that. Yeah. You know, but then you see it, and then, and then unfortunately, it gets to the point where you got to research it and see that it's not a hoax. Because, you know, people like to say, oh, this person died or whatever. Yeah, like, um, I remember there was a story about, like, Steve from Blue's Clues dying, like, a few years back. And, like, his, yeah. Yeah, his mom called him, and he, she's like, There's, they said that you were dead. Like, I was so worried. That's awful, you know? I know. Like, your parent, like, asked, like, asked her, are you okay? Like, I heard you died. And I'm like, no. If, if I were dead, I wouldn't be answering the phone. You would assume but, not, but, you know. Right. Hey, maybe heaven gets really good service. Right, yeah. It really does. They don't run them on Verizon. It's okay. Right. But yeah, it feels like we've been losing so many great people. And this year, just, like, taking Eddie Van Halen. Like, yep. you never you never expect it until, like, it comes. No. And even when it shows up, you're not ready for it. Same thing with, like, David Bowie a few years back, or Prince. Yep. Like, just, like... And with David Bowie, like, he's another one where he was, like, trying to tell us. For my uh, movie class this semester, we watched one of his last, like, big music videos for one of the songs. I think it was called Black Star. I, he made, like, one or two videos, I think. Yeah, he like, made, like, one or Black two. Black Star, one was called Lazarus, I think. Yes. I think it was, it was Black Star. Is and the like, one where he's laying in the bed? Um, no, it's the one where it's very, like, spiritual, where there's, like, people, like, praying and stuff, and it's kind of abstract, almost like you're looking at, like, a David Lynch movie or, like, a Salvador Dali painting. But, like, if you, like, go back and, like, look at it, you can kind of see it's his way of processing knowing that he's going to die, because he knew, like, beforehand. Right, and, uh, was going through all that, and I heard, like, uh, the day he found out, got diagnosed with cancer, that's when he started working on his album. Yeah. And it is, it was, it was phenomenal. It was. And there's a song off there called Sue and the Seasons of Crime that always gives me chills because, you know, especially when there's a certain line where he goes, like, he says, Sue, the clinic called, which means he pretty much maybe uh, yeah. referenced him. And that just always, every time, dude. Yep. And, but that was you one know. of his best, one of his best vocal performances. He sounds like he's in a tunnel. Yeah. And it, it was amazing. Like, front to back. Really good last effort by him. Yeah, he knew that he was, like, his time probably was limited, so he's like, I'm going to put, like, everything I have into this. Yeah, just like he did everything else, and this was no different, you know? That's true. Yep. They all will be missed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But they're timeless, and they, and they live true. on. That's true. 
They will live on in our memories and in their music that they've given us. Their music and their different works that they've given us. Absolutely, and that's like probably the best parting gift like they can give anybody. You know? That's true. Right. Okay, so for our first segment, we are going to do weird news around the world. Welcome to our first segment where we talk about the odd, the unusual, and the downright strange things that happen on our big blue planet. So for our first story, we cut to a man in Malaysia. He's asleep in his bed. He hears a strange noise downstairs. He goes down to his house, and he's real- he realizes that his phone that he'd left next to his table is missing. And the window's open. He's like, oh, no, somebody could have stolen my phone. Or maybe I lost it. I don't know. So he's without a phone for, like, a month. He calls his brother to come in and, like, to, like, from a whole nother country mm-hmm. to come in and, like, try to call his phone and try to figure out where it is. And then he finds it in the jungles outside of his house. <laughs> and then so, okay, so his phone did get stolen, but it wasn't quite by the person that you would expect. After he got his phone, it was a little bit water damaged, a little bit damaged, you know, being exposed to the elements. Right, he, yeah. he opened it up and opened the gallery, and he found a bunch of monkey selfies. <laughs> there was a monkey that had stolen his phone. And decided to go on a picture-taking spree. And a few <laughs> videos, too. I'm going to show a few of these to Steve. I want you to comment on the potential genius of this monkey. And, like, what he probably was trying to express with these photographs. <laughs> so here's the first one. Describe what you see. For some reason, I'm just thinking of the segment in 2001. Was that, like, one of the monkey's audition photos or something? Or, like, a Potentially. It, you know? He was a little bit it's- late to audition for 2001, but I'm sure that Kubrick, wherever he is right now, would appreciate the effort. Moving on to the next one. This is an action shot. I really see his talent. <laughs> Looks like he have like like good vocal range, probably. Like, yeah, potentially. If they ever had like a Queen reunion tour. <laughs> okay, and then um, here's the final one. Here's the final one. What's he doing there? I don't know. Part of the picture is cut off, but he's doing like a profile shot, like from the side. I can. If you listen really hard, I can hear him saying, "It's L'Oreal, and I'm worth it." Yeah, he is worth it. You know, see, if you have, like, hair covering your entire body, you have to, like, really know the good shampoos and conditioners to really take care of that hair. Exactly, yeah. So, for our final story on weird news around the world before we cut to a short break, we go to Massachusetts, a little bit closer to home, and we have this man who's, it's a nice summer day, he's relaxing by his pool, he just decides to sleep on one of the lawn chairs out there. And then, so he gets shaken awake by something. He thinks maybe it's his wife or, like, one of his friends. And it's a black bear. Yeah, the black bear had wandered into his yard while he'd been <laughs> sleeping. And the black bear was decided to drink some pool water, you know. And he didn't want to be rude, so he wanted to ask his permission before he went and, like, swam in the pool. So he walked up, took his paw, and then, like, shook the guy's foot to make sure to wake him up. Wow. Yeah, I know. What what would you do in that situation? You're just asleep in your backyard. You, like, open your eyes, and then there's a bear. First of all, I'd be, like, asking, like, if I'm late on your honey debt, man, I'll get back to you soon. But, like, wow. You're already, like, putting, like... A head out on me right now, like yeah. Like, just get, like, just all, give me five minutes. Here? How did you get here? I know. And why my house? You know, why and your just, house out of everybody's? <laughs> like just for the convenience, I guess. You know, but the, that's really bizarre. Yeah. I'm just surprised that didn't happen here. But you know. I know this in like in this case, this guy actually reacted a lot more rationally than I think a lot of people would. Where like he didn't like freak out and start running in the opposite direction, which is the last thing you want to do with black bears, because, right? Because like, that, that'll probably like it, it yeah. would have like charged him. 
Yeah, know? because with black bears, brown bears, you want to play dead, but black bears, you want to try to stand your ground and kind of scare them off. But the guy just kind of like was a little bit surprised, and he's like, "Hey, man, it's okay. We're <laughs> cool. We're cool, man." And the bear got scared off and ran away. Well, so you gotta admire the guts on that guy. Yeah, you see that show up, like, what do you do? I know. You're just like, okay, so I don't want to die. Your head, you know. Yeah. The first one, not to be like, you know, to white yourself. Yeah. And second, like, you know, is wow. Why is there a bear? <laughs> I'm, I'm just he. So his wife didn't believe him initially when he told the story, because you know it's kind of like, oh my god, there's a bear that got in our house. But luckily, he had a security camera like next to his pool to catch the whole oh, thing so on got film. The whole incident on yeah. here. He's just like, oh no, <laughs> there's a bear. See, that's one of those deals where it's like it's so bizarre, and then like you try to tell your friends. And they still wind up going like, well, Pixar didn't happen. Yeah, well, I know. he's got video of it. So there you go. Yeah, so there it did. Right. Like, that's a pretty surprising story. Yeah. So we're going to cut to our, a short little commercial break. And when we get back, we're going to be talking about movie news. Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. We will be right back, folks. Welcome back to Random Tempted Comedy on WWSU 106.9 FM, Dane's Right Choice, where we bring you the most random entertainment out there. Now for our second segment of the night that I call Reels and Riffs, where we talk about films, movie news, and trivia. This week, we have the opportunity to talk about two of our favorite directors, Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. Okay, so recently, in relation to Stanley Kubrick, Terry Gillum, which I think you probably know him. He's yeah, from, from Monty Python, Python yeah. and also he's directed a lot of great movies, yeah. Aaron Lothan, Las Vegas. But recently, he wanted to make one of Kubrick's unfinished projects, which it got delayed due to the coronavirus. He doesn't know if he'll be able to do it nowadays, right. but people are thinking that it's going to be Napoleon. So what are your opinions about this? About him doing Napoleon? Yes. Um, if someone like Terry Gilliam can do it, I mean, then he could easily get away with it and make it, like, his own in a way. At the same time, it's like, if Kubrick had made it, then it, you know, would have been, like, really outstanding. But, like, you know, Terry Gilliam would be, like, a good close second. But uh, it, it, it's hard to say, really. Yeah, because with the thing about Kubrick is that only Kubrick could really do, like, a Kubrick movie. Yeah. You have stuff like AI by Steven Spielberg, where Kubrick did kind of, like, hand over the reins to that. He'd been working on that. Pro like, Kubrick had been, like, developing AI for, like, 20 years. Yeah, quite a and while. he's like, this is probably more suited to you. Like, to Steven Spielberg's credit, he did try to, like, mimic, his, like, Kubrick's style and stuff and try to do, like, a good tribute to his friend. Yeah. I don't think it turned out as well. Like, it's not that great a movie but i do appreciate the effort i felt i feel like it kind of got bogged down a lot by spielberg trying to add a lot of humor to it and stuff like that and like a like a chris rock robot like, make it like really stuff. camp or whatever you know? yeah kind of <laughs> that kind of thing but uh i don't know like only kubrick can do kubrick that's true you know like only spielberg can do spielberg you know yeah, Spielberg like, excels at, like, his own whole, like, at his own, like, right, like he's yeah. very good at the kind of, like, like, almost fantasy epic. Yeah. Where he does get these epic shots, but it's kind of almost, like, whimsical sometimes. Well, it's like, it's like the Goonies, too. Yeah. You know? Like, he he's kind of his work is varied, but he has a very distinctive style. Yeah. Like Kubrick. It's, it's hard to duplicate, you know? And that's, like, when Dr. Sleek came out, at first, when I first heard, uh, heard about them doing that remake of course i was dead set against it because the shining had been around for quite a while and i'm like why would you do a sequel what would you do with it then i watched the trailer and i'm like okay uh this they're actually trying good. and then i actually went and watched it and he used some of the same techniques he did like the fade ins and fade outs and he did it like really well and i was very impressed I like that they actually tried to make references to, like, Kubrick's Shining. I know Stephen King hates it. 
Oh yeah, because absolutely. it like did like um, deviated from his book and like a few other things. But like I like that the director was like, you know, we're not going to reference like that bad TV movie version of The Shining. Have you ever uh, seen that? Yeah, and I couldn't eat for like a few days. It was that bad. Like I just it was that um, horrifying in a bad way. Know. Yeah, and it's one of those things where you, you kind of like to forget it. But uh, for me, it just didn't sit well. And I'm like, well, first of all, Jack Nicholson isn't in it. Why am I even watching this? You know, I know. So it, that was just a weird, what they would call like a weird flex for doing that. But that's true. To this day, I've, I've I don't know. It, it still don't sit well with me. <laughs> the Shine is one of your favorite Kubrick movies. Absolutely, Why is that? Favorite for several reasons. Uh, mainly, the one is that it's it's a good story plot, and there's nothing overcomplicated about it. A lot of like Kubrick stuff is like. He uses a lot of imagery, and the more you watch it, it's like we were talking about the other day. He um, uses a lot of imagery, and when you keep watching it more and more, you notice something else that you didn't notice before, or you hear someone say something that you didn't pick up on, you know? So it's like, so each time I watch it, I'm always, like, looking for, like, Easter eggs, so to speak. You're always finding new stuff. Right, yeah, and then that way I can, like, not only, like, appreciate it a lot more, but I can pass that along to other people who didn't know it, who are fans of his work, like, you know, like I am and you are. And, you know, he just has this ability to uh, just surprise you. Like, and he's really good at building tension. And that movie, like, especially with Jack and Wendy talking about Danny, you know, and all that. When, uh, what are we, looking for what do you want to do about Danny? I think maybe he should be taken to, when do you think maybe he should be taken to a doctor as soon as possible, as soon as possible. <laughs> and then like, just like his whole rant, you know, about his responsibilities yeah. in a way I can kind of relate to that, you know, cause it's like, you know, they're husband and wife, they're supposed to be a team, but there's still some kind of like, you know, that tension there. Tension yeah. That, and Kubrick just takes that tension. He just, Builds it and then he hits. Jack Nicholson really nails that role. Absolutely. Like, yes. One of the whole movie is definitely one of those films, like you were saying, how good films, like truly great films, are films that the more you think about them, the better they become. Absolutely. Like if you have like a bad, like if you have a you know a mediocre movie, and like the more you think about it, the more you realize, oh, there's a plot hole here, there's right. a bad thing here, there's a mistake here. But Kubrick isn't like that. Kubrick was a perfectionist, and you can see that in his work. Absolutely. Yeah. And when he goes into like doing a horror movie, said that he read like Lovecraft's essay on like making good horror, where it's what you don't see that actually like is the scariest, as opposed to just trying to do like constant jump scares. Right. Yeah. Because like you got a movie with a lot of jump scares, and that's you know, 85% of the movies that seem to come out nowadays, it's very predictable. Yeah. But, like, it's like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft said, um, uh, the biggest fear by mankind is fear of the unknown. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and he's got a good point. And, you know, Kubrick definitely learned from the best there. The Shine-In is a master class in how to build up tension. Like, they're just, yeah. it's very eerie and uncanny, almost in, like, a David Lynchian kind of way, which we're going to cut into David Lynch, like, later. Right, it's, it's just very unsettling. Like, when you see, yeah. like, the Grady twins at the end of the hallway, and you it's almost like you don't realize that they're human. You kind of just, it's just that shot. Yeah. Like, it's very, like, the it's, movie it's is iconic. very haunting. Oh, yeah, it's very iconic. Yeah, it's very iconic, and, the like, a lot of the scenes in there are very haunting. Yeah, very, like, you know, it takes place in, you know, a hotel, like, with a bunch of stuff that happened there. And uh, so he gives you that bit of information when Holleran's talking to Danny. And then, like, little by little, you can, you just, especially the soundtrack, dude. Yeah. The soundtrack was very unsettling in itself. In certain scenes, like, certain parts of the soundtrack, 
there's like a heartbeat like in the background like oh, when bump, um bump. yeah when dan like oh yeah it's when like wendy's talking to jack and she's just like we just need to leave the hotel and he's like leave the hotel and you hear like this heartbeat like the hotel's louder. alive and then you hear that oh yeah then jack starts like you know that and then yeah that's that, when and everything that, like breaks yep right man that that's that that soundtrack i think was half of what made it yep yep which is true about a lot of good horror films. Absolutely. You got to have a good score in the background. Like Alfred Hitchcock, he definitely has true. good scores. What are some of your other favorite Kubrick films? The first one I ever saw, I just remembered this the other day. It wasn't The Shining, but that was, I think that was probably next. But the first one I saw was the first half of Full Metal Jacket. And I just remember watching that over at my uncle's house. And I remember just rolling with Arlie Ermey. And yeah. like the opening speech, man. And he is perfect for that role. Arlie Ermey, absolutely. Gunny did a great job. And uh, I really can't see anybody else, like, doing that role as good as he did. Originally, I think I've told you this before, but originally the role of, like, the drill sergeant in the film was supposed to be for the helicopter pilot. Like, oh, okay. that's in towards the second half, you know, the... Where he's the, gunning down the Yeah, where he's gunning down, like, that civilians really? and stuff. Yeah. That would have been a close second, I think. Yeah. But because he was, was like, too. he actually was a Marine, too. He wasn't a DI, but he was a Marine. Oh, okay. And, like, um, he went through, like, almost, like, half the process. And he was, like, casting the role. And then Lee R. Ernie, he was technical advisor. But he's just like, I want to be in this movie. So during, like, the production tapes of where they were judging, like, the extras and stuff. Didn't like, he, like, demand the role? Yeah. So he did. And yeah. then Kubrick was like, oh, I saw you in this other movie, Boys and Company C. I don't know if you're the best part for it. Because in that movie, the director made him act a lot more subdued. Mm-hmm. But so when they were auditioned at like extras, they had to do like a tape where like the drill sergeant was yelling at them and see how they respond. Like an audition tape or something. Yeah, more or well, less. Yeah, for the extras. Okay. Oh, the and extras. then so like they had the they had the helicopter pilot guy. I like like do it first, and like he was going at half speed, what which is what you're supposed to do when you're auditioning like another person. Right. And then yeah. Lee Arnie like comes over there and he's like, "What's your major malfunction, Private?" <laughs> and then so like he did that like constantly throughout like all the extra tapes, and then. Like, like the next day, Kubrick comes in. He's he like he's laughing because he knows what like Ernie did. He's like, I told you you couldn't audition, but you found a way to do it he anyway. Made, he made Kubrick laugh, huh? Yep, that's hard to do. That is really hard <laughs> to do. It was all business, but like you know, Kubrick knew what he was doing, and he happened to find the guy, right guy for the job. Football Jackets another one where it's haunting <laughs> and it's very realistic in its portrayal of the Vietnam War. Yeah, and just like like boot camp in general because my dad was in the army like right around that time like shortly after vietnam ended right and his according to him the the portrayal of the drill sergeant is pretty accurate oh, he yeah, had to definitely. deal with like a lot of stuff especially coming from ohio right and michael jeff was a drill sergeant in the marines too he oh really the, oh he had the voice for it oh yeah. he had the voice for it yeah he was in uh i believe it was uh desert storm According to Kubrick, actually, drill sergeants and, like, teachers and stuff actually make pretty good actors, like, off the gate. Because essentially, like, every year, like, every class, they have to kind of just repeat the same ground that they've done before. Right. And they can just, like, do it, like, exactly. Like, they can't, they kind of get into, like, a routine of doing it. Yeah. Eventually, it becomes routine, you know, being in the Army and is, you know, obviously routine, you know, trying to get prepared for war and all that. So, there was Full Metal Jacket, and then I found out the director's name, and I checked out The Shining that was on... TV, I remember first watching it when I was in middle school or something. It was like on that AMC Beer Fest or Horror Fest or whatever. I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. And then there was a Clockwork Orange, you know, and I got to hand it to, you know, to Malcolm McDowell really delivering on that role, you know. 
Malcolm McDowell is somebody who, he's, in the movie, he plays a completely irredeemable monster, but at the same time, he has enough likability to almost make him, like, you sympathize with him, and you know that you shouldn't because he's raped, killed, like, and, like, killed and, like, assaulted people, but at yeah. the same time, the way he plays it, you're just like, you know, I feel bad where he's, when he's getting his comeuffins at the end of the movie. Yeah, it, it's like like your brain tells you, like, I'm really not supposed to feel this way, but I do anyway. Yeah. I'm just going to root for him anyway, you know? And yeah, they, because it's just the way he plays it. Like, right. nobody else could do that role, like, the same kind of justice that he did it. Like, that look at the beginning of either. the film, that haunting look he gives no, like, right, to the camera. Prova and he's just got that glass of... Yeah, and it, like, pans back. And he's just going like that, you know, and his drugs are just sitting there kind of like, you know... Off like, to the side, but, like, yeah. he's, like, staring, like, right into your soul. Exactly. Like, and through the camera. He's got what you would call, like, really powerful eyes. Kirby I know. A really good opening shot with that, yeah. That's definitely one of the most iconic shots in all of filmmaking. It really is. and uh, It's actually know, on my then, filmmaking book. There you go. And then, like, you know, you got, like, the the score. Yeah. The, you know, really good score in the background. You know, Beethoven's ninth and all that. That tends to, like, bring out the scenes a lot more. You know, he'll he use like a bit of electronic music in that film. But That's like, true. So moving on to one of our other favorite directors, David Lynch. David Lynch recently, after like the pandemic started, he started doing a thing that he used to do a few years back. Weather reports. And like if it was anybody else, <laughs> this could be like a really boring thing. But with David Lynch, you really enjoy it because he's one of the like likably crazy, like kooky artist type directors. There, there's nobody like him. You know, what are your favorite? Some of your favorite David Lynch films? Uh, Lynch films. Lost Highway as a recent favorite. That that was a really good one. Um, Blue Velvet. I had a friend of mine from my last job. He got me turned on to him. I didn't even know who David Lynch was until he told me. And then um, I started off watching uh, Twin Peaks first. I really got into that. And then I looked up his you know filmography. I found out he did Eraserhead, and I watched that for the first time. It was beginning of this year. I'd never seen it. Then you know there, but anyway. There was Lost Highway, Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive, which really screwed with me. Yeah. That's and probably then, one of my favorite films of all time. Yes. It, very good plot. Very good plot. Um, then there was The Elephant Man, and that one I cried at least four times because it was really moving. And it had a very young Anthony Anthony Hopkins. Yes. And that was uh, really good stuff. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. I would almost describe David Lynch's style as like being... Very uncomfortable and uncanny, but in a very kind of unique way. Like Eraserhead, especially. That movie is just really uncomfortable really, to sit through. Really disturbing. Yeah. It really is. But, you know, he made it into. And even in some ways, it was kind of funny, but when you kind of laughed, you kind of felt bad because, like, yeah. you're like, <laughs> especially that scene with the mom. Like, like man. I know. Tying it back no, to Kubrick, like, at the time of making The Shine and Eraserhead was his favorite film. And he kind of tied in some of that, like, uncomfort that you feel during Eraserhead into The Shining. Yeah. You can definitely see that. Well, exactly. And, like, Lynch is, like, much like Kubrick, he was really good at building up tension. Yeah. And at the very last, like, few minutes of the movie, he drops you with it. You know? Yeah. Especially, Mulholland Drive is a very haunted movie. It's, like... Very. I would consider Mulholland Drive, like, almost the expression, like, the best expression on film of, like, a dream, essentially. Yes, uh, I would agree with that. You know, like, it, when you're watching a Lynch film, to me, and you, you'd probably agree, too, it's yeah. like watching a dream, pretty yeah. much. Because there's a whole bunch of stuff that's being said that doesn't make sense. And but, it kind of, you know, like, jumps around, and yeah. there's parts that make you really feel, like, uncomfortable, but also he can bring out, like, the joy and, like, the bright colors at certain parts, too. Right. But you see that a lot in Blue Velvet. Yeah. Where it's almost like... Oh, boy, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Blue Dennis Velvet. Hopper 
with uh, like the with the methane machine yeah, and stuff. Man, like he's I was so. Like, I saw that. I was like, what? What am I watching? It's so crazy. I see more. But what but yeah, is this? But it works. It <laughs> does. works. You and the like right person to play, you know, get a casting. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And a more obscure, like, um, actually, this was the first movie after you recommended David Lynch to me. This was the first David Lynch movie I saw. One of the more obscure ones, Rabbits. Oh, I don't even know one. how to describe it. I, <laughs> I know. I, it, like that's, again, that was like a good example of like being able to watch a dream because I yeah. had no idea. I sat there and like there was just, like then they have that laugh track. I know. It was very disturbing. I'm like, what is there to laugh at here? This is very tense. It's like, like it's like if David Lynch tried to like make a David Lynch movie, but he tried to do it like even more Lynchian, if that makes any sense. Like, like it's even weird for Lynch. Maybe or something. Like yeah. trying to outdo himself, trying to out Lynch himself, I guess, yeah. or whatever. Like, I remember trying to describe it to like our friend Jeremy, and I was just like, okay, so it's like a sitcom with rabbits, but where nobody looks at each other. Everything everybody says doesn't make any sense. No. There's a laugh track to stuff that isn't funny, and then occasionally there's like Satan comes in, right. and like everything turns red. The whole room goes red, and like the lights flicker on and off one of them comes up and starts yeah. reading like something like and the back pages of jim morrison's poetry book yeah. or something like what i, was just, I don't even know bizarre, dude and then like the scene what? at the end where the lights go out the door opens up and it just there's a scream in the hallway and nobody reacts to anything and like the whole movie i was super tense i'm like what's gonna happen like right especially after like the first scene where everything went red and like there's that voice i'm just like yeah what is gonna happen yeah like the then you have like the dad bunny come up and just talk. And then you have like the wife, and then then they're going, oh, like what? I don't even know why I would rate <laughs> I that movie. It's an you experience. Can't rate it. You can't rate it. It you defies rating. Right. And that kind of movie, like being shown like nowadays to this newer generation, I think they'd be like, well, this is horrible. I'm like, well, you don't, don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> but even though there's not not really much to get, it's really but... a movie for David Lynch fans. Right. But also right. like. I would just kind of recommend it to people just so they could experience it once. Just, yeah, just say they've seen it and be yeah. like, okay, well, it wasn't like any of his other stuff, but now I can say I've seen it. Yeah. so It's probably like top two, top three weirdest movies I've ever seen. Maybe the first one. I don't know. I've seen some pretty weird <laughs> It'd ones. It'd be hard to dethrone that in terms of weirdness. It, it really would. would. You know? I know. Yeah. So we are going to cut to a short little commercial break. When a random attempt at comedy returns, I will be interviewing Steve, and we'll get to hear one of his songs live. Welcome back to a random attempt at comedy, and for our final segment of the show, we will be interviewing my friend and local musician Steve Lloyd about his music career. At the very end of the show, Steve will be playing us one of his songs that he's written. So, Steve, how long have you been creating your own songs? The whole thing started, I guess, when I was in freshman or sophomore year. I was about 14 or 15. My dad is probably my greatest musical influence. He got me into a lot of the bands I listen to still nowadays. You know, Aerosmith, Floyd, Zeppelin, and all the others. But uh, A lot of the greats. Right, yeah. My dad was a guitar player when he was growing up. And when I was younger, I'd hear him play like a lot around the house and all that. And that's what got me into it, really. So uh, then I started like trying to form bands and stuff. Uh, they'd be short-lived. Like It wouldn't work out. The chemistry wasn't there or anything. But um, I've been pretty much doing this since uh, about 2004. So, yeah. Oh, wow, that's a long time. Yeah, it is. So your dad playing guitar was one of the reasons why you wanted to pick up the guitar in the Pretty first much, place. Pretty much, yeah. So as far as like some of your favorite bands, 
Who have been some of your favorites throughout your life, like bands and musicians? You mentioned Aerosmith and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, but who are some of the others? Ozzy was a big one, especially in uh, high school. Heard all of his back catalog and all that. Black Sabbath is another one of my favorite ones. I, I would hear Paranoid a lot, you know, and uh, Iron Man, War Pigs, you know, the mainstays. But one particular day I was looking through my dad's uh, collection with the cassettes, and I noticed there was a tape that just had Black Sabbath on it. So I picked it up and looked at it. Paranoid was on one side. Then there was just an album just called Black Sabbath. Well, I wasn't aware at the time that that was their first album. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'll just skip Paranoid. I've heard it quite a lot. So I put in the other side with the first album, and I was just blown away. From start to finish, it's a lot different than all their other albums. You know, Paranoid sounds kind of polished and radio-friendly, but Black Sabbath was just like, it was recorded in one day. And from start to finish, it, it, it was just like way ahead of its time. Yeah. They know? essentially started metal. Right. They, they pretty much did. The, yeah. I will always say that they're primarily responsible for starting that genre. So. There was a little bit in like um, the Beatles with Helter Skelter. Oh, yeah. But like, hard rock. Kinda, yeah. yeah. But most people crazy. would agree with you. We're just like, you know, that's where it all culminated into what we now consider as metal. Right. And then, then like Cream was another big one, too, like, you know, for the heavy type tunes. But there was Black Sabbath. Then I got into like a lot of um, underground punk way later. Bands yeah. like Flipper, Beat Happening, Black Flag. But they were cool. They were just good, the really fast stuff and the slow stuff as well. Then there was power violence bands like, you know, really fast sped up punk with gibberish for vocals. It's funny. Out of your favorite like musicians and bands, who do you think had the strongest influence on your work? Without a doubt, the Beatles. Just the fact that they were just born musicians like they took everything they uh were influenced by they did uh they, they took their own thing and they ran with it and just also like the chemistry they all had and not to mention like the overwhelming success they had that's what really got me so that and then i started thinking at a young age well if they could do it maybe i could do it what is your creative process for creating new songs it comes in waves to be honest like some days if i'm just walking along or something like hear like a riff in my head maybe i've heard it before maybe i haven't heard it before but it'll stick in my head and it'll be like a constant loop all day. At that point, if I'm at home, I try to make sure I jot it down on cassettes, on boombox, Stone Age method, but it works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I uh, I do that. I jot down some words that go with it. I'll just keep, you know, trying to find the melody or the harmony or whatever, and like, you know, get the main riff down. That's pretty much like some people like to do music first and lyrics second. A lot of times, sometimes I'll do lyrics first, music second. So it, it all depends on what the mood is. Sometimes I can like just catch it right away and boom, it's done. And then some days like I'll like just drag it on for like a month and a half. And then I wind up tossing it. Whatever. It didn't work out. It didn't really work out. It wasn't what I was looking for. Maybe it was at the time. Then I go, eh, I'll just scrap that. So. so what aspect of songwriting do you prioritize more when writing your own songs? Meaningful lyrics or like a catchy melody? Depends on what the situation is. Like, if I had to choose, though, like, I would say lyrics. In music, you can always switch up. For me, like, if I'll, I'll just have, like, a random line just pop in my head. And I'll go, I like that. And then, like, it could be, like, a reference about myself, someone I know, someone years ago, or whatever. Um, whatever the relationship was. But, like, that will always, like, stick out my head. Then I'll just kind of write it on my hand or take a piece of paper at work or just fold it in my pocket and use it for later. So what kinds of experiences do you draw upon when you're writing your song? I've always heard it said that music is a good form of therapy, and it's true. Yeah. You know, For me, that's always been my go-to. You know, obviously, there's my friends and family if I need to reach out, and they're there. But music seems like just as important. You know, It's something you can go to. It won't judge you. It won't put you down. Like It's there if you need it. So 
a lot of times when I go through something, that's usually what I lean on a lot. It's me. It, it, like it, it's there if you need it, and for me, it's good to get out, like iron myself out in a way, which is what I've been doing recently as well. Like getting yeah. back at it because there was a period where I didn't pick up a guitar in like months, but like it all happens when you're dealing with something and you just can't devote to your passions. That's when it's getting pretty bad. Everything blows over and stuff. You have all this time to like just do your own thing and run with it. And that's usually what I run to when things are finally starting to lift. I'm like, oh, there's that again. I can run to it. I can enjoy it a lot more now. And I can appreciate it a lot more. So that's usually my go-to. Like a lot of past experiences, like, but the way I'll do it is, and I want to make, you know, any kind of lyrics I make for open interpretation. If you think it means that, okay, then that's what it means to you. But the only way you're going to find out what it means to me is if you really ask me. But overall, like with what I've been trying to do, especially lately, is just, Leave my lyrics and everything open for interpretation and see what people make of it. Because it's almost like a two-way conversation between you and the listener. Exactly, yeah. Like, they may not see it the way I see it. Maybe they'll come up and tell me, like, well, I listened to this line and it, you said this, but it doesn't mean this. And I'll go, well, wow, I didn't, never thought about that. You never thought about I it like that. Did, you know, if I were to play it again, I'd be like, then I'll flash back to what that person said. And then I play it a lot differently in that aspect. But, you know, open interpretation... I really don't want to like be one of those artists where people like make something more of it than what it is. Yeah, know? like some like what they were trying to do with like the Beatles lyrics and stuff, where they were studying them in schools. Yeah, well, John, you said this. Is that name? But like, no, I'm just. It can mean anything you want it to mean. That's exactly what he told. Kirk exactly. was another one. He told him also, like you know, whatever you think I'm talking about. Okay, cool, but it may or may not be what I had in mind. You, you'll That's never true. know, right? So, what is the hardest experience that you've had to go through as a musician? Um, first and foremost, you know, with everything going on, it's hard to, like, play, like, shows and, like, open mic venues. That's what I really wanted to do at the beginning of the year because I had everything outlined to where I was going to put something out physically. Yeah. And that's probably going to get bumped toward literally the end of the year, but I got all this time now, so it's okay. But, you know, and for any musician, like, going through this as well, they want to play. They don't yeah. care if they get rich or not. They just want to like go out and play. That's their passion. That's what they want to go for. Venues are closing up and losing business and stuff like that. Where like it, it it it's hard to do it nowadays. But you can kind of compensate for that by like just going live at home. Exactly. And you can still get your music out that way. It may not be the same, but you're still doing at least something about it. Yeah, it's still a way to get your music out there during the global pandemic. Right. That, that's the main one. Another one is, like, I've gotten in several projects before. Where, like, it started out good. And I was never really the type to say, I'm going to write everything everyone has to do. No, I, I always told the guys, I mean, one of the last bands I was in, like, you know, you guys want to write something, do it. And then we started writing. And, like, one, the drummer wrote a song. The guitar player wrote a song. The bass player was starting to write songs. I had my songs. But I'd, I'd like, keep them off to the side. That way the boys would have a chance. And it was starting yeah, to gel really good. Then one day they just... <clears throat> They just they just dropped me and kept the name, and then they nowadays I guess they've all gone their separate ways I guess but uh, I don't even know if most of them do music anymore you know but uh, it, it it's it's hard to find certain people who like are compatible musically yeah and I'm starting to figure out that I kind of work best by myself and like I can bring my own vision to it where no one is expected to play like what I want them to play. You know, as, as long as, like, you're, you're with it and you know what's going on, you can add whatever you want to it to bring it out better. You, know? you have full creative freedom. Right. It's like my music partner, like, Mike Smith, who I did a demo with. He he was, it, it's like I told him, it's like, you know, 
with a song or someone working on a song, say it's my song. Like, I'm laying the foundation, but he's helped building the walls. He's helped building the house. Yeah. And the end result, you get a house out of it. You know? So each song is like a house, pretty much. You lay the foundation, you build up on it, interior, whatever. So that's pretty much my method. That's a nice metaphor. Yeah. So what's your proudest moment as a musician? I think this would be one of them, to be honest. Yeah, this is the first time for me being on radio and all that. So this is a, you know, a totally you know different, you know, kind a of totally new band. experience, right? Yeah, and um, with the previous band I was in, uh, we did one show down at Blind Bob's, and um, in the Oregon district, and we opened up for a couple of uh, stoner metal bands, uh, Lopan and Maharaja. That's a mouthful right there. Yeah, it really is. And but they were all great dudes. The drummer from yeah. Lopan said we were pretty good. Going live, and you know, my friends like chiming in, like that they liked what they heard. That's yeah, that's a proud moment. Um, and then for right now, like what I'm working on, like is I think pretty defining because I've you know, I think I've kind of experienced some kind of growth, but yeah, so it, like it, it's a combination of a lot of things, but the I think the main thing is just to keep going, you know, see what you can do with it, of course, right? You just gotta keep walking, yep. So now Steve wants to play one of his songs live for us today. What's the title of your song? And do the lyrics hold any personal significance to you? Uh, the song is called Exhale. Spelled X-H-A-L-E. Gotta have and, markability. Yeah. This song I've been sitting on for about three years now. And it, it's gone through a lot of growth and development. Lyrically, for me, it, it definitely holds a a very personal meaning for me because the overall message I'm trying to convey here from my perspective, if you ask me, when you exhale, you breathe out. Yeah. And lyrically, what I was going for here was like taking all like the not so good things that have happened to me over the years and making like a positive about it. So it's just like, you know, taking everything that's happened, putting it into words, sit, you know, speaking your piece, you know, everyone needs an outlet of some sort. You know, you go through a lot of bad stuff, but how you carry yourself through it means a lot. But if you just, you know, keep on with it and nothing can, you know, bring you down. So that's pretty much the main message of it. Just just keep on, breathe out the bad stuff, exhale it out. It's very deep and inspiring, man.
Great, man. Thank you. Final question. Where can the people listen and go to hear more of your music? Um, Yeah, that's the tricky part. Nothing's out yet. I plan to do a physical release sometime. Um, I plan to li- initially release it in the first week of December. I did my first session yesterday, there, and uh, I hope to have it done by Saturday night, so that's the plan. It'll all be finished, but get packaging and art, everything. But uh, there's nothing out uploaded yet. I do play on my Facebook Live. And I do stream some of my songs every now and then. But as far as physical, nothing's out yet. Okay. But that that's in the works right now. Okay, cool. And as soon as you get a physical copy of like your album or your single that you're planning on release, we will market that through the Random Attempt to Comedy Facebook page. Cool. Thanks, man. So that's our show, folks. Thanks for having you on, Steve. It's great having you Thank here. You, man. It was a lot of fun. Any shout-outs before we close out? Uh, first and foremost, to my dad, um, Scott Lloyd, uh, to my mom. And uh, all my family, all my closest friends, everyone who's been like, you know, 
has had my back and especially have supported me over the years. I really appreciate and love you guys very much. This has been a random attempt to comedy on WWSU 106.9 FM. Thanks for listening, everybody, and have a good night.